0: to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: How can we be made righteous? Well, that's what justification is. Jesus was righteous. Jesus never thought, said, or did anything contrary to the will of God. And because he lived a perfectly righteous life, he was able to die and pay the penalty for those who violated God's laws and lived in unrighteousness.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Isaiah chapters 44 through 45. Now here's
1: Pastor Brian. All of that wisdom of the Greeks, God turned it all to folly. In the fourth century, there was a great man named Athanasius, and Athanasius, um, one, of, one of the books that he wrote comes down to us today, and it's called On the Incarnation, and he has a chapter in that book where he talks about the philosophers of the day and the seeming brilliance of philosophy, but, the, but also simultaneously the powerlessness of it. it. It could never do anything for anybody. Even the philosophers themselves couldn't, you know, really, they didn't live any kind of a transformed life through it. But he talks about how the gospel comes along and how God takes fishermen and he takes a tax collector and he takes these just simple people and he literally changes the world through that message. And the philosopher's message never changed anything. It's it's really a fascinating read from Athanasius. It just came to my mind as I was thinking about it there. So... That's what the Lord said he does. He confirms the word of his servant, performs the counsel of his messengers. He says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, the cities of Judah, you shall be built. So remember, when the people of Judah go into captivity, taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, the city is just, is destroyed. The temple is destroyed, the city's destroyed, and it's gonna lie in rubble for 70 years. And so you can only imagine in the minds of the people, there is no future for Jerusalem. There is no hope that there's ever going to be a restoration. God says there is going to be the cities of Judah. You shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry. And I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus. Now here is a very interesting Turn, who says of Cyrus, "He is my shepherd, He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, "You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid." So here God names this ruler who has not been born and will not come onto the world scene for about a hundred plus years now. So that this is what is so fascinating. God gives him his name. Cyrus is his name. He calls him by name. You know, it reminds me of another passage where the prophet prophesied to the king of Israel, the wicked king of Israel, that one day there would be a child born to the house of David named Josiah. And then he goes on to tell all the things that Josiah would do. And hundreds of years later, Josiah was born and did exactly what the prophet said he would do. So here now we have this prophetic word about Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was the Persian king. He came to the throne of Persia in 559. And in 549, he conquered the kingdom of the Medes. And so the It became known then as the Medo-Persian Empire. And they took over the Medes and just assimilated them in. And then in 539, he conquered Babylon. And so that's what God is talking about here, that Cyrus is going to come. And so thus says the Lord to his anointed, this is really fascinating, that he refers to... Cyrus as his anointed. You probably know that the word Mashiach is the Hebrew word for anointed. That means Messiah. And so now, of course, you find this word in the Old Testament. It's used of the kings. It's used of the prophets. But then there is one designated Messiah that begins to be spoken of in Scripture. And and that, of course, would be Jesus who would come as the Messiah. But Cyrus is anointed. He's a Messiah in the sense that he is God's servant to accomplish God's will. Now, Cyrus, it says, To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze, cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And Jacob, my servant, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord and there is no other, there is no God beside me. So again, remember, this is how God is proving that he is the only God, that he is the one true God. He's proving it by telling the future. And so now he's saying, "There, Cyrus is going to come and he is going to do my will. He's going to set the people free from the captivity as he conquers Babylon. And that's exactly what Cyrus did. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he says that when Cyrus came into Babylon, that he was met by a Jewish delegation who brought him the scroll of Isaiah and showed him where the prophets over a hundred years earlier had predicted his arrival and what he would accomplish. And Cyrus was so overwhelmed by this that he basically just gave carte blanche to the Jews at that point and did exactly what God said they would do. They went back to the land. He sent them back to the land with the order to go and rebuild the temple. So now remember, Isaiah's writing this. They've not even gone into Babylonian captivity yet. So he's telling them when things are relatively nice in their land, the Assyrians have been conquered, everything's kind of smoothed out. Isaiah is telling them, actually, here's what's coming in the future. The Babylonians are coming, and you're going to be led into captivity because of your sin. But God is going to come and liberate you, and he's going to do it through this one named Cyrus. And so he says, I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know that from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity or disaster. The King James Version says, I make peace and create evil. And evil is a bad translation and it completely gives the wrong idea because it gives the idea that God's the author of evil, which he is not uh, the author of evil at all. He states that over and over again in the New Testament, First John chapter 1, verse 5, God says that he is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the word means calamity or disaster, and it speaks of judgment. God says, I bring peace, but I also bring judgment. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now he says, rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down in righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. The potsherd is a broken piece of clay, like a broken pot. And... Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. In other words, you know, a a man is like a broken piece of clay. Uh, You can, you know, contend with your fellow broken pieces of clay if you want. But the point is, don't strive with your maker. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, the one who made me has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the mother, what have you brought forth? So here God is basically saying, and Paul the apostle picks up on this and he repeats this in Romans chapter nine. What what he's really saying here and something that we need to just face as a reality is that God can do what he wants. God does what he wants and thank God what he wants to do is always good because God is good But God can do what he wants. And no person, no human being can really do anything about it or, you know, really say anything about it. God God is going to do what he's going to do. And he he has every right to do that because, of course, he is the creator. But not only is he the creator, but he's good. And we know that what God does is good, even though some people would say, well, if God is good, why is this? that way? And why is this problem like this? And there are really, I think, very good answers to all of those questions. It's not my point to get sidetracked with trying to answer those. But just know that God is, when we say God is sovereign, that means that God rules over all things. And no one in the end can tell God what to do. He's the creator, and so, I think, if any of us, for just any amount of time, could get a grip on the magnificence of creation alone, this would be sufficient to let us know that you know we really is not wise to disagree with God or to push back against him or to challenge him. We can do that in in a way as, as we're trusting him. We can have those moments where we don't understand. But I'm talking about the person who's, you know, sort of got his fist raised against God, you know, cursing the heavens. Not a wise thing to do. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. Here we go again. I have made the earth, created man on it. I, my hand stretched out the heavens and all their host I have uh, commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. We're talking about Cyrus again. And let my exiles go free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So Cyrus did this, just he did it because he knew he was supposed to do it. There was no reward for him in doing it. He did it, he knew that he had been commissioned by God to rebuild the city and to let the exiles go from their captivity. And so thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, there is no other God. So these would be the the nations that have oppressed them. God is saying that their fortunes are going to be reversed. Hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced. All of them, they shall go in confusion together Who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. So, this is three times in these chapters that God has stated the same thing over again who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it. Who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. And you know, that that same truth is transferable to us today the lord's call to seek him is not in vain. In other words, God is saying, I'm calling you to seek me for your welfare. I'm calling to seek, I'm calling you to seek me as a benefit to you. There's something in this for you now. You know, sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, we shouldn't seek the lord for anything we can get. We should just seek him because he's God." Well, that's a noble thing to say, but I think the reality is all of us know that we need God. And so we're seeking him because we need him. Of course, he's worthy to be praised and worship. And the needing thing is a secondary thing. But the truth is we need the Lord. But it's okay because he knows we need him. And he says that his call to us to seek him is not in vain. He promises to bless those who seek him. He promises good things for those who seek him. And although that doesn't exempt us from trouble in this life, it doesn't exempt us from problems, it doesn't exempt us from sickness, it doesn't exempt us from death, but it is a promise of blessing. And of course, it's a promise of eternal blessing because the ultimate glory is in the the next life where we live and reign with Christ in his kingdom. So I, the Lord, speak Righteousness, I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge who carry the wood of a carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord and there is no other God beside me? a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. So again, the contrast with the idols and again, even, you know, looking at things today to think of, you know, you you have people today that will, maybe it's an astrology chart or maybe it's somebody's going to read a tarot card for them or they're going to go for their daily horoscope or, you know, all those kinds of things that people still engage in. And, These are all connected back to these idolatrous kinds of cultures. And God is just saying to everyone, really, Israel specifically, but to all of us, uh, there is is no other God. And to pursue after these things, to put forth effort, especially to engage them or or seek to worship in, in these ways or depend on these things, this is the height of folly. And so the Lord says in verse 22, Look to me and be saved All you ends of the earth. What an amazing invitation. God just goes all the way here. You know, he's again, he's speaking to specifically to Judah and about their deliverance from the captivity and all that. But now he just extends the invitation all the way to the ends of the earth Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength to him. Men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him in the Lord. All the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now, these words probably sound familiar. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And remember, that is the declaration that Paul gave concerning Jesus because Jesus humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul takes something, a part of this and talks about salvation how salvation is believing in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. And so here the Lord declares that all of the earth is invited to receive this great salvation. And the salvation is being justified by the Lord and glorying in him. And what it means to be justified is it means to be declared righteous. The the problem with every one of us is that we're unrighteous. And the second problem is that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous as much as we would even try. Now, most people don't even try that hard. But let's just say for argument's sake that we really just went out on a quest and said, you know, I am really gonna try to live a righteous life. And um, some might do better than others, but every single person would always be able, if they were honest, to say, well, you know, I failed there. I failed here. I thought the wrong thing here. I felt like this over there. I said that. I mean, that's just, that is who we are. We're, we're unrighteous. So how, how can we be made righteous? Well, that's what justification is. Jesus was righteous. Jesus never thought, said, or did anything contrary to the will of God. And because he lived a perfectly righteous life, he was able to die and pay the penalty for those who violated God's laws and lived in unrighteousness. And so we now, if we put our trust in Jesus who lived the perfect life, then God takes that righteousness of Jesus and he puts it on our account and he declares us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. And that's really what the Lord's talking about here. He says that in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified. And so in the Lord, in Christ, all who are in Christ will be justified. One final little note here. Some will appreciate this. Others might not know much about the person here that I'm gonna mention. But this 22nd verse is the verse that C.H. Spurgeon responded to when he heard it preached and gave his life to Christ, and then from that point forward, uh, became one of the great preachers of his day. Probably that he was known as the Prince of Preachers, and we're still gleaning from and being blessed by his sermons now, you know, a hundred plus years later. But it was In a small little chapel, he described it. He was a desperate young man. He went into a small little chapel. He described it. He had a good sense of humor. So he described that the preacher was pretty feeble as a preacher, just actually was not much of a preacher at all. But he was able to utter these words, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And Spurgeon knew at that moment that it was God who was speaking to him. And he responded to that And it changed his life, and it changed ultimately the lives of tens of hundreds of thousands of millions of people because he became a great instrument that God used for his glory and, as I said, is still using today. So I haven't been really the best preacher necessarily, but I can tell you this. The Lord said, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. And if there's a single person that's watching this and you are not saved, well, here's your moment. Call upon the Lord. Just ask him to come and to save you and he will do it. He will do it and he will forever change your life. And whether you go on to impact millions of people for the kingdom of God or not, it doesn't matter. Maybe you will. Maybe that's the plan that God has for you. Maybe you are a Spurgeon for the next generation. You never know. But whatever it is, God has a plan. And as you cry out to him and ask him to forgive your sins and to save you in Jesus' name, then you will enter into that plan.
0: For the month of August, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nije Gupta. How can we understand some of the most important concepts in the Bible? And how can those concepts make a practical impact on our lives? In his book, 15 New Testament Words of Life, Dr. Nije Gupta traces 15 words through the Bible that make an impact on how we live the Christian life. Words like righteousness, faith, and holiness... You'll learn their Old Testament background, discover their relevance during New Testament times, make connections with other passages in the Bible, and realize their practical impact for living life today. This book will help to bring theology to life. If you want to see how some of the most important theological themes in the Bible can come to life for you, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nije Gupta. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you